0: Thank you for listening to this message from Northwest Hills Community Church in Corvallis, Oregon. You can learn more about our church at nwhills.com. Today, Pastor Josh Karstensen is continuing a series on 1 John. How do you determine what's right and what's wrong? Is it group consensus that makes something right? John states that God is the one who sets the standard for right and wrong. And our role is to have fellowship with God who will reveal where we have sinned and ask for his forgiveness. After the message, spend some quiet time with God and confess your sins. And by doing so, you'll demonstrate that God, not yourself, determines what's right and wrong in your life. Now, here's today's message. Go ahead, Jim. All right. So today's reading is from 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. So last week we started what will be a 14-week series. Um, We are looking at John, Jesus' closest friend. Uh, What a very unique vantage point we get from someone who lived with Jesus very closely and we saw this very unique vantage point of someone who after Jesus left life did not necessarily get easier for him in fact it got a lot harder right which is kind of a strange thing to think about because you'd like to naturally think my my soul likes to think that if i follow jesus maybe my life gets easier right it certainly gets better and john talks about that But it doesn't necessarily get easier because if we follow the life of John, and we talked about this last week, we saw lots and lots of hardship. Right. We saw all the persecution from the Jews. This would be the religious overseeing of the, the primary city that he was in. We saw that he was arrested multiple times. He was told to stop telling people about Jesus. We see this man, Stephen, was killed in Acts chapter seven. We see ultimately the reigning government of Rome really persecuting the early church, beginning under Nero, lasting two and a half centuries. We see all of the other disciples other than John killed. So John is the longest, last living disciple uh, who is writing, and he would have heard to some degree, I believe, the death of all these followers of his. He experienced the, uh, a tyrannical government forcing him to, to drink poison to try to kill him. He, w- he was dipped into hot boiling oil to try to kill him. He was banished to an uninhabited island. I mean, you would think at some point, if anyone has the, the reason to say, God, I don't know that you are for me, I don't know what you are all about, like what is this whole thing that you say that you are about, if, if anything, John has reason to question who God is because of all the hardship that happened after Jesus came, but that's not who John is. He he doesn't have the ability to say, I don't think you're God because life isn't happening the way I would like it to happen. Because of one unique thing, he actually met God. And because he met him, he, he has to say, okay, you're very different than perhaps I would like you to be or perhaps the outcome of certain things I would like, but I've met him and what you are is so much better than what I would like to think on my own apart from meeting you and so he said last week He said when we know who the true god is when we know jesus who is god We can have a few things. He says we can have fellowship with one another. We can have this deep Connection and longing and family and think about how sweet that would have been in a time of a lot of persecution Right, to have a group of people to say, hey, we are being persecuted, but we have one another. And then he says, we can have this deep fellowship, this deep intimacy, this deep connection with God himself, even through the midst of hardship. And in the midst of all that, we can have what he calls a deep, lasting joy. And so John's going to say today, yes, we can have, har- we can have uh, joy in the middle of hardship. Yes, we can have fellowship with God. We can have fellowship with one another. And through all of that, through the hardship, he's going to continue to say, be light to the world. Right? Be hope in this place where there's a lot of darkness. Bring love. It's just this constant grandfather theme of someone who's lived through it all, who says, guys, just be loving. Care for one another. All these different love one another statements. And he cements it all with really kind of the foundation of everything in this first little section of John chapter 1 here. Last week he says, Jesus is God. And then today he's going to answer what I believe is one of the most important questions that we will ever ask. He asked this question, and I think that this is a question that in a lot of ways I think is going to be, how do I say this, a, a defining question perhaps for the rest of my life. And and really, I think it's just going to get more and more of a thing going forward in our culture and world. And that is this, how do we determine what is right and what is wrong? It's a question that sounds simple in some ways. How do we know what's good and how do we know what's evil? How do we know what we ought to do and how do we know what we ought not to do? And it's a question that, you know, in general, we'd, we'd like to think that there's all kinds of um, agreement on what is good and, and what's bad, but the reality is we're starting to see, I think, more and more disagreement about what actually is morally good and, and what isn't. You know, when, when we agree, life's easy, but when we disagree, it gets complicated. So you think about agreement and, and how easy life is when we agree. There's this, uh, there's this show called Flight of the Concords. And there's this funny episode in it where um, there's these two guys, and they're kind of in this like indie folk band, and, and their manager is talking to them. And he says, guys, we need to, we need to stop being so political uh, in, our, in our songs, because it's going to cause some division. He says, guys, you, you recently wrote this song about canine epilepsy, um, about dogs who, get, uh, who are epileptic. And uh, we need to be careful, because we're going to ostracize those of our listeners who are pro-canine epilepsy. And... He gives an example. He says, well, see, if you were to write a song about being um, anti-AIDS, you would ostracize those who are pro-AIDS. And he, and he kind of does this survey, and he looks around, and it's like, well, obviously, no one here is pro-AIDS. Like, this is obvious. Like, no one would be pro-dog epilepsy. Again, when we agree on some very obvious, simple things, some of you are looking at me like, what is he talking about? <laughs> Maybe you had to see it. The point is, there are certain things that we can agree on that we would all say, yeah, that's obvious. We all agree. And when we all easily agree with things, it's easy to go forward. But what we see very often, and I see it more and more frequently recently, is we're not very good at agreeing on basic moral decisions. A uh, couple weeks ago, if you were kind of reading the news, there's this interesting kind of interaction that's going on in Florida. Uh, Florida passed this bill. It's not a law yet. It's a bill uh, that banned the following. I'm just going to read the language here. It prohibits this. It says it prohibits classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity uh, for kindergartners through third graders. So they passed a bill that said, if you're in kindergarten through third grade, teachers shouldn't talk about sexual orientation or gender identity to that age group right? And this is a worldview people believe. We shouldn't do this. Well, there's other worldviews that say, oh no, like this is tyrannical. We need to teach them this. This needs to be foundational to their upbringing and to their formation as young children. Um, there were a number of Disney employees that spoke out and were really upset with the uh, CEO, Bob Chapek of Disney saying, we need to stand up against this bill because this is really harmful to our young kids. You can read different uh, actors quoting different things, and I'm going to read one of them. One of them says this about this uh, proposed bill. He says, It's an absolutely ridiculous law. It's insane. It's insanity. And I hope that Disney as a company comes out as forcefully as possible against this idea. It's astounding that it even exists in this country. All towards a bill that says, Perhaps we shouldn't teach kindergartners through third graders things of uh, gender identity and sexual orientation you can see where that tension lies, right? You can see where some worldviews say this is a good thing for people and other worldviews say, well, maybe we should wait on this. Maybe this is not a good thing. This is the types of tension that we live in in our day as we are beginning to see kind of a rift in society of what people believe are good things and what people believe are harmful things. And the question becomes, well, how do we then decide who's right? How do we move forward? How do we get consensus on anything? And is consensus the thing that actually makes something right? You think about the problem of how do we ultimately decide Right? Who gets to decide what's right and what's wrong? I'm going to share a little bit of thoughts from a, a book that I've been reading recently, really over the last kind of year and a half. This is a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Carl Truman writes it. And in this book, he quotes another writer by the name of Philip Reif, And he talks about different cultures and ultimately where we get our authority from, where we get our morality from, where we get the uh, ability to say these things are right and these things are wrong. And he distinguishes cultures into three different parties, first cultures, second cultures, and third cultures. He talks about first and second cultures and he says we get our morality, our ideas about what's right and what's wrong from what he calls a transcendent source, something outside of ourselves. In first cultures, he talks about how fate, and this is kind of a Uh, ancient cultures primarily, fate is something that determines how we ought to live. And so you think about um, the story or the movie 300, and you think about the Spartans, and you think about Leonidas, right? There's this scene where where the king Leonidas is wanting to take his army into war, but he doesn't just get to make that decision by himself. He doesn't get to say, I'm going to do this because I think it's the right thing. He has to go visit an oracle. And it's this really kind of dark, strange theme scene in the movie and in history, uh, according to legend. And so he visits an oracle and the oracle has to determine, well, what does fate say we ought to do? And so the oracle, through some mystical something, looks into the future and says, yes, it is granted that you shall move your army forward. And so the king gets permission and he goes forward and he does this. This is first cultures. They're looking at an authority outside of themselves to determine how they ought to live and what is right and what is wrong. As in their second cultures, If you're a Christian, you would be someone who belongs in a second culture. This is someone who believes in a transcendent being, right? A God, if you will. And so this is Christianity. This is a a Muslim world. This is a Jewish world. Uh, This is anyone who who subscribes to a God outside of themselves who says, There is a God that exists that prescribes values, and we ought to, as a society, obey what this God has to say because God exists, and if he exists, we ought to follow him. And then you have third cultures. Third cultures are very distinct from first and second cultures. I'm going to read this quote from this book about third cultures. And we're beginning to see some of this third culture uh, ideology in the world that we currently live in. He says this. This is Carl Truman. He says, both first and second cultures have a moral and therefore cultural stability because their foundations lie in something beyond themselves. To put it in another way, they do not have to justify themselves on the basis of themselves. Third cultures, by way of stark contrast to the first and second cultures, do not root their cultures, their social orders, their moral imperatives in anything sacred. They do have to justify themselves, but they cannot do so on the basis of something sacred or transcendent. Instead, they have to do so on the basis of themselves. And the inherent instability of this approach should be obvious. In third culture, someone makes the argument, I'm right, because I'm right. There's no argument. There's nothing to say why I am right, other than perhaps occasionally, you know, we subscribe to, well, a majority of people might believe this. But we see the problem with that type of thinking. If it's simply 51% say that this is right, therefore we ought to do it. Well, what happens if that 51% are actually wrong and we all know it, right? Just because we want to say something is true doesn't necessarily mean it's true. And you think about some of the tragedy that we talked about last week, right? We think about the war that's going on uh, between uh, Putin and, and Ukraine, and, and Putin believes to some degree that he's right? He believes, like, I can do this. It's right. Well, who's to say that he's wrong if it's just up to individuals to say what's right and what's wrong? So ultimately, unless you have a transcendent being outside of authority that says, outside of ourselves that say, this is right and this is wrong, you really have no stability whatsoever. And it's to this idea of what is right and what is wrong that John begins this letter. And I don't think it's a mistake that he starts here. And he says the statement that I think if you grow up in the church, you're very familiar with this. And and I think we can kind of listen to it and it kind of rolls off easily. But I think it's a lot deeper than simply just saying God is light. I think we're going to see here that he is really grounding the truth that if you know who God is, he is the absolute authority for everything that we believe, both right and wrong. So he starts out in verse five, after in verses one through four saying, I've met Jesus. He is God. He will talk about his nature and character here in verse five. He says, this is the message we have all heard from him. And we proclaim to you. So he's saying, this is what Jesus told us, that God is light and in him, there is no darkness at all. I mean, that one statement stands alone. This is... This is John saying, if you know who God is, God is everything that is good. God is everything that is right. God is everything that is true. There's no dualism going on here. There's no yin and yang. There's no, God is both good and evil as a lot of the uh, Roman pagan gods were. God is very distinct from any of the ancient gods in this way, that God himself and he alone is good. And if God is good and God has revealed himself, which uh, John says so and the work and person of Jesus, then it ought to be our imperative to figure out, well, who is this God and how can we know him? Because all of us, to a certain degree, have an innate desire to want to live in a way that's good. We all want to live in a way that's right, and we kind of struggle to figure out what that is. But ultimately, we're going to get to the spot where we're going to say, how can I know who God is if it is true that he alone is good and Right? And so John's gonna make a bunch of statements and ultimately statements are all about how can I be sure that I know who God is? Because if God is right, if his standard is the standard by which everything ought to live up to, how can I make sure that I align my life in such a way to follow this one God who is true, who is right? He gives a couple of evaluatory statements here. Starting in verse six, he says, if we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. Let's look at these two statements. He kind of makes one and then he makes the inverse of it. He says, you do not know God if you continuously willfully do what God says you ought not to do. And we call this sin. Right In this statement, he says, walking in darkness. If you continuously, willingly, purposefully walk in sin or walk in darkness or live how you know you ought not to, you do not know God. And then he says the inverse of it. He says, you do know God if you do what's right, if you walk in the light, if you know what God says you ought to do and you do this, then you do know who God is, Ultimately, he says, if you know God's kindness, if you know God's goodness, if you know the nature and character of who God is, and he is perfect and he is right, then everything in you will will try to follow him, right? It's like a good relationship. Think of it like a marriage, right? Um, Or or a a good dating relationship. If you you love your spouse, um, everything in you is going to try to do what pleases your spouse, right? If you know that there are certain things that your spouse does not want you to do, if you're a good spouse, you're gonna try really hard to not do those certain things, right? If you know that there's certain things that, that your spouse just really wants you to do, you're gonna do something really hard to continue to do the things that your spouse wants you to do. All right, think about it this way. I'm gonna use an extreme example. Um, let's say that you're engaged to be married and you're talking to your soon-to-be spouse, Your, in my case, soon-to-be bride, and, and I tell my bride, hey, I, I just love you so much. Um, I love you so much that I gave you this ring and I just, I can't wait to live the rest of our lives together. But, um, but I also have a lot of other girlfriends too. And and I love them also. And I gave them all rings as well, but, but you're my favorite. Um, I hope you get where I'm going with this. Right? How easy is it to say, God, I love you. Like, like I, I'm going to follow you, but I've got these other things over here that I that I like also. Right? And John's saying, if you willingly do the things that you know God does not want you to do, I don't think you understand who God is. I don't think you understand what this marriage thing is all about. Because if my wife, if my fiance is a good fiance at that point, she's like, no, 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 no. You don't understand what this is all about, sir. Right? Like game over. And God's saying the same thing. Like, if you think that you can have all of your extra stuff on the side, that is very much against who I am, then you don't understand me. And this is what some of us do when we say, "God, I, I know what you want me to do. I know how you want me to live, but I'm going to willingly continue to live how I want to live, and I'm going to live whatever lifestyle, and you you pick your poison." Like, I'm going to choose not really to engage in the church. I'm going to choose to not really serve. I'm going to choose to not really take seriously your word. And I'm not going to serve. I'm not going to be radically generous. I'm not going to share. If we consciously make these choices that go against what God asks us to do, John's saying, well, clearly you don't know who God is. If you're not doing everything that you can to try to obey him, you don't know him. And again, the inverse of that is true as well. If you do know the father heart of God, if you do know the, the longings of your spouse, you're gonna say, baby, I'm all in. Everything else, that's gone. Like I'm with you and you alone and everything in my life is gonna be commitment towards you. And yeah, there may be times where I mess up. Right, there may be times when I'm, you know, I'm trying to follow the Lord the way that he wants me to follow him and the way that my heart wants me to follow him. But and there will be times where I'm not gonna be generous like I ought to be. And there will be times where I'm selfish and there will be times where I get angry and I get upset. And when those times happen, what does a follower of Jesus do? It says he repents. We see this in verse nine. And I'm kind of jumping ahead, but in verse nine, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Do I know God? My desire to obey him will show if I know him or not. And the idea that if I constantly mess up, I constantly come back and ask for forgiveness. But this idea that we can live however we want, and we think that God will just forgive us, John says, well, you clearly don't know God. And this becomes a very important point with some of the cultural issues around, you know, whether it's sexual identity or orientation, things of this nature, where we make this argument and we say, you know, this feels natural for me, therefore I'm going to do it. And God says, well, regardless of whether something feels natural or not, I'm telling you, this is how you ought to live. So we are to suppress what ought to feel natural so that you can obey me. And so what we try to do is, because we know this is true, this is a very important text in terms of all this, is that we try to do all this theological gymnastics to say, well, God's word doesn't really say this. When in fact, like God's word is, it is what it is. And it's our job to conform to what he's asking us to do, regardless of what feels natural for us. And this would be true of anything in a relationship anywhere. And so our obedience to God is one of will. It is one of understanding. And if we willfully choose to disobey, John is saying, you do not know God. Well, does this mean that I'm not a Christian if I willfully purposely, perpetually disobey God? Maybe. Maybe. Right? Saying a a sinner's prayer, saying a, a prayer and having no life of repentance and no life that says, yes, I'm going to follow you, might show that you didn't really understand what you were doing when you said that prayer. It just might. Because what does Jesus say? He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent! Thirty years ago, the argument would have been what they called lordship salvation: is Jesus uh, your Savior, and is He your Lord? Have you said yes in belief and then given your life to Him? Right? We read these words in Luke six about what it means to follow Jesus. He says, "Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone comes to me and hears my word and does them. I will show you what He is like. This is to the obedient." To know God is to know what is right and what is wrong and is to do what you can to obey him. It's not to say, God, thank you. I know you. Thank you for your life and your death. Now I'm just going to go live however I want. That means you don't really know who God is at that point. Do you know him? He continues on with two different ways about how we know God in verses eight and nine. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In verse 10, he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You don't know God if you say you have no sin. And you do know God if you understand forgiveness. Hear John saying that God is the ultimate authority. And, and sometimes, and I have conversations like this all the time. I had one with a guy on a basketball court just last week that we, we like to determine what we say is right or wrong. And when we're doing that, we're saying that I have no sin, right? When we get to say, God's not the standard, I'm the standard. And when we say like, I'm going to live life however I want. And I, I get to just pretend that I am my own God. Ultimately, when we do that, we don't know who God is and ultimately ruin lies ahead of us ultimately one day, whether it's our culture at large or us as individuals, we will see that there is a standard that we will stand before God and that we will be held accountable to the standard that he laid in front of us, especially those of us who know what that standard is, right? So how ought we live? In obedience, not one saying, yeah, I I don't have any sin, but one who is self-aware, And then as a culture as a whole, we'll see what happens to a culture who says we have no sin. We'll see what happens to a culture who says we can live however we want. We become the standard of our own authority. Remember Jesus' words, when you build a house with no foundation, what happens? The stream will break against it and immediately it will fall and the ruin of that house will be great. You think about our, our culture as a whole and what happens when we don't have a foundation, when we don't recognize what's right and what's wrong um reef wrote this and i'm going to quote it and he says no culture this is fascinating no culture ever has persevered where there is not a registration of sacred order their cultures have not survived the third culture notion of a culture that persists independent of all sacred orders is unprecedented in human history We ought not decide for ourselves what's right and what's wrong. And here's John saying, as we wrap it up, he's saying, I met God. I lived with him for three years. I saw him. I was literally in front of him holding on to his weeping mother when he was nailed to that cross. And I saw him three days later. And I know that he is God. And because he is God, he shows us what true love is. He shows us what life is. You got to know who this God is. And John says, God came to do what? To bring forgiveness. And so he's going to end with this last little phrase. If you know God, you know one thing, and that is you know forgiveness. And there's a theme here. The more that we know God, the more we become aware of our own sin. right, and i found this to be true in my life. As much as I don't want to admit this, the older I get, the more I recognize how often I am wrong. The mark of maturity is to recognize that we really do need repentance. I'm going to finish it out with these words from Isaiah chapter six, one of the most powerful displays of God's glory, God's goodness, and of our need for repentance. Listen to this and then we'll finish. This is Isaiah six, starting in verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at his voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, and this is I being Isaiah, one of God's prophets to the nations, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Father, we want to be a people who recognize our need of forgiveness. And we also want to be a people who stand and live in that forgiveness. Yes, we want to be a people who say, woe is me. God, I I can't live according to how I think is right. I need to live according to what you say is right. And so I want to hold on to your words that are precious. But Lord, I also need to live understanding that I'm forgiven. God, that I'm going to try to follow you and I'm going to try to obey you, but I'm going to fail. And when I fail, I still can stand with boldness and say, I am forgiven and I am loved because ultimately Christ died on that cross, not for him, but for the world. And I am in that world and I recognize that woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. And that is us. And Lord, we need to repent and we need to recognize that you and you alone are good. Father, we love you. and It's in your beautiful name we pray, amen.
0: Thanks for listening to today's teaching from Northwest Hills Community Church. We hope you find ways to apply the gospel to your life. And be sure to check out our website, nwhills.com, where you'll find ways to engage, including resources like our application questions. Thanks again for listening.